You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV, culturally determined. I'm your host, Ari Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Megan Down. Uh, Megan, could you please introduce yourself? Hey, Arie. Uh Yes, I'm Megan Daum. I am a writer, essayist, now podcaster, longtime opinion journalist, now retired, <laughs> emeritus. I'm an right. opinion haver emeritus. Right. So um, we're going to be talking about a piece that you just published um, in Medium and uh, in the headline is The Last Think Piece. Subhead, after 25 years, I'm reti- retiring from, quote, cakes. Uh, we'll link to the piece below. I, you just put it up today, right? Uh, this is Thursday the 17th. I think it went up it December 16th. Okay. So yesterday. So, yeah. So this is breaking news, uh, although this might not run for a little bit. But um, so I encourage people to read the piece. <laughs> and, um... I think they interrupted a lot of news live news <laughs> broadcasts to let everybody know that I was no longer writing takes. Right. So this is breaking. Um, so, okay, people should read it. Uh, I enjoyed the piece, and immediately after I read it, I uh, messaged you if you want to talk about it on the show. And and, and so this is going to be, um, well, th- I guess th- this is going to be somewhat of a meta conversation or something, but we're not, we're going to try to not offer takes, uh, because you're giving up being in the, in the take business, and um, so I don't want to, I'm not going to try to, you know, pull some, extract some takes from you, but I, I did think it was interesting, and the piece resonated with me. Um, and so, yeah, so can you just say why, uh, why you're giving up the racket of, uh, being, of, you know, writing about your opinions, uh, in, uh, on a regular basis? The short answer is, I don't know what I think about anything anymore, a lot of the time. Uh, you know, it's funny, I, you asked me to come on, uh, to come on your show a few months ago based on something that I had written, and I can't remember what it was now. But I do remember that the reason that I declined was that I it's not that I didn't believe what I had written. I just didn't care enough about it to even talk about it or defend it. And I honestly don't remember what it was about. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember not, now also. But I, I, do, I, I re, was, yes, I remember reaching out to totally you. It was totally worth the invitation. Yes, it was, <laughs> it was obviously enough that you thought to have me on. Yeah, uh, we could. Yeah. So, so but I do remember thinking uh, that that piece was interesting and well-written as all of your pieces are. And uh, there are parts that, that I remember disagreeing with, but I don't remember exactly what the topic was, but I th- it wasn't pre-pandemic. I mean, the, the, the other thing is just like the strange compression and expansion of time during right. this year where we're doing the same thing every day. It makes it hard to remember, you know, what exactly things happened. But yeah, you, you declined. I think you said something like, yeah, you're kind of sick of, of thinking about these things and you didn't have anything more to say than what was in the piece. So. Yeah. I think it's not, um, it's not really that I am tired of having opinions in and of themselves, I don't feel that I can do them on a set schedule anymore. There's something a little bit uh, curious about just the um, the conceit of the regular columnist. So, you know, for a long time, I was writing in the Los Angeles Times weekly. A lot of people, a lot of newspaper columnists write twice a week, even three times a week. Right. And it's funny because that's that's a gig. Everybody wants a steady gig. If you're a writer whether you're an opinion columnist or a, a reporter or just any, any kind of writer, what you want is to get a steady gig. So you get a steady check. So um, that's great. But the other side of that is that you have to just sort of um, cough things out a lot of the time. So if you're, especially if you're an opinion columnist, I found that 
um, over 10 years, say, writing the LA Times column, probably would say I had like a really strong column, maybe like one out of every five times and like an okay one, uh, one out of every, you know, four times, you know, three or times. And then, you know, occasionally you just have like an absolute turd that you had to write, you have to say something like right. they, there will be a hole in the newspaper back when there was actual newspaper that anybody cared about if you don't file something. So you end up sometimes writing things that you don't even really mean. I, I've never said something that's like the opposite of what I think, but sometimes in order to like end the piece to sort of have it tie together logically, you have to like have a conclusion um, that that makes rhetorical sense, but it's not necessarily like some earth shattering insight that you're excited about sharing with the world. And um, that's just not a good way to live for more than, say, 24 years. Let's just put it that way. OK, so so some of this maybe is just the kind of burnout that anyone in a career where yeah. you're like doing something intensive, uh, ver you know, over and over again would, would maybe suffer from. Um, but thinking about it, yeah, I mean, I've, I think I've said before in this show, uh, the, the, the online discourse has, you know, is especially obsessed with opinion columns and especially the New York Times opinion page. And those columnists I usually write two pieces a week. Um, yeah. sometimes it's just one, but, um, it's almost impossible to write a hundred odd, 800 word, you know, mini essays a year and have them. I'll be good. Like that's, that's virtually impossible. So there's going to be some clunkers. Like you said, I mean, you were putting your batting average at like somewhere between, I guess, 200 and, you know, 333 or something yeah, like that. I'm not, I'm not good at averages. I'm not going to say that one out of every five was an absolute turd, but uh, definitely one out of every 20 was, I actually thought it might be funny to go back and pull up my worst columns, but like, why do that to yourself? Right. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it, it seems um, both like, kind of an impossible task, but yeah, like you said, that, you know, that is getting regular comments at one of the remaining major newspapers is like the the crown jewel, the, the triple crown to continue the batting average uh, metaphor. And, and yeah, and especially, and strangely at the New York Times, it seems to be a, like a tenured position. Like uh, they give people a column and then they keep on going, even if they've run it's out of It's a lifetime appointment. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why like that is exactly, Supreme but Court. some of these people and I'll name names like Vereen Dowd or, um, you know, I mean, well, I, I you know, when's, when's the last time I, I used to read Gail Collins and laugh? Uh, I haven't read Gail Collins in probably a decade. Um, you know, it, they just but they they just keep churning this stuff out. Um, so it is weird. It is weird in that particular instance with the Times that they they keep on going no matter what, even if they have nothing less left to say. But it is you know, th there aren't a lot of jobs where you have like lifetime tenure. It's like uh, federal court and university professor and and. Uh, right. opinion, opinion columnist for a major newspaper. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so that's, so that all makes sense. Um, so I guess, so the obvious question is what sort of writing are you going to pursue? Because at the end of your piece, it says, you know, this is like your last column. So you're on medium, which is medium.com, the website, and then the a subsection or a mag imprint within it called Jen. Um, yes. that's what you're writing for. And so you're leaving that post, but, uh, right. You're staying with medium and you're gonna be writing about other topics. Well, so for the last couple of years, I've been writing for Medium's publication, Gen. Medium has several sub-publications 
Uh, one of them is Jen, G-E-N. And yeah, initially I was writing uh, two, two uh, pieces a month for them. And I actually did not want to write, you know, we talked about like, you know, they came to me and they said they, they do, you know, obviously medium is a complicated because obviously it's many tiers and, you know, anybody can post on medium and then, you know, but they're, they do have a stable of regular writers that are paid like regular contract writers at mm-hmm. any other publication. And so we had negotiated that. And I said at that time, I do not want to write once a week. I want to write every other week a longer piece. Usually they were pretty long, 1,800, 2,000 words, which felt like an incredible luxury because after being a newspaper columnist, having to hit like literally 730 words every week, um, as as you probably know, it's harder to write short than to write long a lot of the time. So, yeah, yeah so the, I was the, doing the, twice a There's a famous a clip. I would have – I can't remember who said it. I would have – this would have been shorter if I had more time. That's right. That's right. Yes. I can knock, I can knock 3000 words out in, you know, (laughs) 45 minutes. Uh, so yeah, I was writing for, for them and then we took it down to once a month. And again, people are like, what's your problem? You can't come up with something to write once a month. I mean, I'm being a little, a little hyperbolic here. Uh, it's, it's more that, uh, I just felt like I have a very high threshold for originality. I don't want to say something if I feel that anybody else has said it. I really want to offer something fresh. I want to be counterintuitive. Like I have certain benchmarks in any given piece that I want to hit. And I, I felt that just in the, in the digital sort of journalism economy, the metabolism of production is such that it's very, very hard to say something original and, I just, it, it was just becoming less interesting to me. I didn't feel that I was um, really contributing on the level that I that I want to contribute. Um, and also, it, it's just, like I said in the beginning, we have such a, um, there's just such a, I don't even know what the word is. It's like a mosh pit of, of information uh, of, that we're subsumed in mm-hmm. that, um, I, I honestly, I have a very hard time parsing it and I don't know what my opinions are anymore a lot of the time. So mm-hmm. I felt like to, the, in, to be intellectually honest uh, was almost like gaslighting myself in, in a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you did, you had, you did, you're avoiding the question, which is what is, what are you gonna, oh, what what sort of thing gonna are you going now? to be writing in the future? Um, Look, oh, I'm going to still be so I'm not going I'm not doing these columns for Medium's Gen magazine anymore, but mm-hmm. uh they do have this uh sort of new stable of bloggers um and I'm going to be one of those. Susan Orlean is one, oh, wow. um Ashley Ford, um uh Alexander Chi, like really really great writers. So I get to just do little um I can kind of just ruminate on whatever I want once or twice a week. But I'm sure that the occasional opinion will will slip in there. <laughs> what I'm not going to do really is write the think piece. Right. That's what I'm saying. Okay. I yeah. can't possibly not have an opinion. I mean, that would be hard for me. So I'm thinking of that. I don't think they run them anymore, but there used to be this guy, Verlin Klinkenborg, who wrote these kind of like rural life pieces for the times. And a great novelist too. I, I, I never read him beyond this. is This is in the pre-internet era. I remember like, this is when I was in high school. I was, I was reading these pieces and yeah, he'd be like looking at a bird. He was right about that. You know, they were like lovely little things. I don't know exactly why they paid him to do this. I, think, I guess he was on the editorial board anyway. And he lived like, you know, in some rural area and he would just do these little 
kind of dispatches and um so maybe i don't know if it was diversity and inclusion back then we, we have a guy on a farm right exactly um yeah and that, I guess that was probably more well I, mean, I don't know that was more when the the times was somewhat less of a national paper in the sense that like everyone in the country was was reading it every day everyone quote unquote um but yeah, so maybe, well, yeah. Uh, well, I hope you pursue pursue what your, uh, where the muse takes you. I'm going to be, yes. I, look, I don't have any other skills, so I have to write. Don't right. don't worry. I know <laughs> people are terrified. They might not, never hear another word from me. <laughs> okay, not, so, the, so um, I want to ask, okay, so part of this is like, so you, you once wrote for the LA Times, and, and, and at that time, so this was like around... 2000 or so when you were writing for them? I wrote for them from 2005 to 2015, 16, oh, okay. basically. So, okay, so that's sort of beginning of the social media era to, to five or so years ago. So, and, you know, it, it, so it once was limited real estate, like, get, like getting that stuff. Like, literally, um, yeah. there's only so much space in the paper. And then this stuff moved online, so there's more. But now it's, um, it's infinite, and Medium is part of that, because Medium, in its original iteration, was the place where you could, uh, anyone could publish something and it looked really good because they had this great graphic design, a very easy user interface and stuff. And so I, there's pieces that I've written fewer than, you know, five pieces over the past five years that I put on medium when I tried to like sell it to Slate or something and they didn't want it. So I was like, oh, I'll just put it on medium because, uh, it looks nice. Um, so in a way medium is like sort of part of the problem of like the takeification of online discourse because it lets any you know, more on like me, write something and it looks semi-official because it's on medium and it has nice graphic design. It has and nice font, fonts. Font and stuff. Yes. Yeah, it's a great font. Yeah. So, uh, so it's not just a blog or something, which is, was the like previous iteration of that. And then, but it's, it's interesting that me, I, I think medium started off as just a platform and then, but then it moved into content and it's so now yeah. it's, it's somewhere in between and like that and other sites like YouTube has done that also, like YouTube makes its own original content, but it's still primarily a platform that almost anyone can use. And, but then other things like I guess maybe Facebook is trying to do some original content, but I don't think that's. Been oh, a success. really? My I think goodness. they tried doing some shows type things with like influencers, uh, but no one really has watched it. And then Twitter has not embraced original content, as far as I know. Twitter's not paying anyone to to tweet. That's still like the bargain basement of <laughs> where anyone can get in the muck and uh, and play around there. But it is kind of like I mean that's the sort of thing is that anyone anyone can get on Twitter. And really, unless you're doing something really insane, like they will let you stay on there and keep on putting out whatever you want and you can disseminate your opinion far and wide. And that was impossible yeah. 20 years ago. So, so th I'm interested in sort of like the material condition, sort of technological aspect of this as well. Right. Well, and I that. just want to be clear. So the, the writers who write for medium in the capacity, in the capacity that I have been, we have editors, we, ha we get copy editing, like it's a, professional deal it functions like any other magazine so um and i had really really terrific editors there so um it's not yeah just 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 to be clear i wasn't just like throwing my stuff up there right so you're being paid as much as i would love to so you're being paid um, the, th the things i put on medium um no one paid me for it was just like yeah know, just <laughs> putting it up there the funny thing about twitter is up until recently i had this theory that Twitter was kind of saving uh, opinion writers from themselves because, or any writer, like if you had an idea and you wanted to just get it out of your system or like a funny line or some, you know, just little conceit or theory, you could just, you could just tweet it and then you've said it and like 
you, you don't have to write a whole piece about it. Like all these kinds of germs of ideas that it used to be like, oh, I want to say this. And, and then you end up like trying to trying to get, you know, a thousand words out of it or something. You could just you could just tweet it and get it out of your system. But um, now I feel like there's such um, there's such an insatiable uh, hunger for takes that aren't just tweets that are functioning as opinion pieces or columns in, you know, on digital platforms uh, that people are forced to turn these things into little think pieces and kind of make a tiny little idea, just stretch it out into something that is supposed to be like a, an interesting or relevant story. And that that's a tyranny and, and it's really an economic issue. I mean, I, I, as much as I can't stand getting old, I'm so grateful to be the age that I am because uh, I came of age as a writer before you were expected to just like churn out three takes a day and get paid like less than minimum wage for it. It's it's really, really difficult. So um, a, a lot of it, I just think that the um, the it, it's it's just so clogged. We're just so clogged with information and with opinions and articles, it's just, it's very hard to get heard. And the problem is that the only way to really have your piece get heard in any way is to say something outrageous. Um, And then you've said something outrageous that you probably don't mean unless you're a sociopath. And then you've set yourself up for just saying stuff that you can't really stand by in order to, to stay relevant. And that's like a disastrous recipe. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I, I mean, something interesting that has happened this year in media is people moving to Substack. Um, and so, so Twitter kind of, Twitter like was one of the main culprits in killing the blogosphere. And, um, because there was just so much more, you know, your thing could go viral so much more easily. It was more entertaining. It was more like gamified in a way that got people addicted to it, etc. And so all, most of the, you know, the, the heyday of, political blogs that also like that period of mid aughts, like that led to the creation of blogging heads. Like that is almost entirely gone. Um, and a lot of those people moved to Twitter and then some of those people got sick of Twitter, like mostly rightfully so. And those people are now like moving to Substack and Substack in some way is like re- recapitulating the blogosphere of 10, 15 years ago with figures like Glenn Greenwald, Andrew Sullivan, Matthew Iglesias, um, who, you know, were really great at bloggers, at being bloggers, and then, you know, they moved to other places, more mainstream things, or Glenn Greenwald founded The Intercept, and then, you know, left in a huff a couple months ago, but anyway, it was like, it was just weird that, both that this is happening, and also, like, it kind of took so long for some viable or possibly viable business model to be created by, like, one company that made it so that people who were bloggers 15 years ago could like now get paid something for doing what's essentially a blog, except it ends up in your email instead of like, you needing to go out and find it. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I subscribe to a number of sub stacks. I like reading them. Uh, I think, you know, it's something I might do in the future right now. Like I said, I'm just, it's, I kind of just don't have the energy to, to write, um, you know, long, long pieces that, that I feel like I could serve my readers. One thing I am doing, I started a podcast. I mean, really what is interesting me these days is talking to other people. So I started a podcast. It's called the unspeakable podcast. Um, 
one of my books is called The Unspeakable, not the most recent one, but um, a couple before that. And, you know, it's an interview show. It's it's I talk to um, interesting people about, uh, you know, topics that I guess are now considered taboo, even though they would have been completely anodyne five minutes ago. Um, and I just want to have thoughtful, nuanced conversations with honest uh, people. And I started it uh, late last summer and it's, it's fantastic. I really love doing it. I love um, finding the guests. I love, um, you know, getting ready to talk to them and, and talking to them and, and really sort of thinking about how conversations can be productive and surprising and respectful. Uh, and so I really want to hear other people talk for a while uh, and less of myself talking. So that's, that's what's really uh, most exciting to me at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And as someone who's been doing a podcast for about five years now, it's um, more fun, I think, than, than writing pieces. I mean, writing, writing a piece, I don't know, it's a lot, for me at least, I mean, maybe you can turn out 3,000 words in 45 minutes. I'm a much slower writer, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, They're which, really, really good. Yeah, <laughs> but doing I can't actually. But yeah, and also being playing the role of the interlocutor or interviewer is uh, is more more. I think I'm, it's more so to my skills uh, at least than than being the the pontificator. Um, and part of that, so you kind of also mentioned about like feeling like you're less sure about things than you once were, and so you didn't want to be the person handing down the, you know, the words of wisdom or something like that. And that resonated with me also. And especially things I've been thinking about in terms of like both uh, the rise and fall of Donald Trump and how crazy the world has gotten the past couple of years and like things in my personal life, like uh, getting divorced and, you know, kind of throwing up my hands being like, you know, why, why are these things happening? I don't know. Um, and so yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm in no position to like offer the definitive take on something. So I'm much more, comfortable asking questions i think um and you actually you kind of jokingly have jokingly talk about this in the piece about how annoying it is to be married to someone who is producing two op-eds per week because you're like constantly you the writer constantly looking for content and worrying about everything oh, it's and... doing for the other person yes, yes right yeah uh I, it's it's annoying for anybody. Like if you are, whether it's your partner, like the person you live with, whether it's your best friend, whether it's like any given family member, any anybody that you're with, um, routinely, they have to just kind of put up with the fact that you're constantly mining your world for potential material. All writers do that to some degree, of course. But if you are on a schedule and you have to come up with something. Uh, not only are you constantly looking for material, you're just constantly panicked. It's like, I think, you know, David Brooks, I think, said this. It's like having a term paper due every day. That's, and, you know, the the the, the material issue aside, the, the, the issue of subject matter and content aside, just having that kind of pressure on you, you can't enjoy life. You can't enjoy anything. Um, and so it's very tempting to say, you know, if your spouse says, well, let's go to a movie this weekend and like, no, no, I can't. Like my pieces do Monday. How dare you? You know that I can't do anything. And so I, people learn to say like, oh, well, you could probably you could write about the, the film that we see and, you know, you can get it, you know, do it this way or, you know, I, I, you know you're, you're refusing to go on vacation. But consider all the potential columns you could get out of, uh, you know, this this particular trip. And but then you end up just like not enjoying the trip. And 
um, you know, holding up in the hotel room the whole time trying to trying to write the columns. I mean, like a lot of people too also don't realize that unless you have a really cushy deal, most of us only get paid when we file. So I, I could take a week off, but then I would lose a week's payment. <laughs> Uh, so it's it's really kind of hand to mouth thing as well as as being on a on a treadmill. Right. Um, so, but you know, here, but I wanted to get back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is you know this idea of of I don't know what to think anymore. Right. I've I've always taken an approach to my to my essays and to my nonfiction, wherein I'm really inviting the reader to think alongside me as I sort through my thoughts. I was never really interested in being the kind of columnist or certainly not the kind of essayist that says like, you know, this is what I think, this is what the truth is. I'm going to take you from, you know, A to Z. And by the end of this piece, you're going to completely be on my side. It, you know, it's a suggestion. I'm, I'm inviting you to consider something. And I just think that the bandwidth for that kind of consideration is significantly narrower than it has been in the past. There just, there isn't a lot of tolerance for it or even really ability to, to process it. So if you could write a piece like that and people are like, whoa, what, so what are you saying? You're not, you know, the best case scenario is they don't know what you're saying. And worst <laughs> case scenario is that they just project the worst possible thing onto what they read and make all sorts of, you know, assumptions uh, that, that aren't there. So unless you are absolutely crystal clear uh, with your quote unquote take, you are vulnerable to willful misconstrual yeah. and that's no fun. Yeah. I, I, wasn't the, uh, the title of the piece that we talked about, um, about that you wrote about the intellectual dark web was called, wasn't it nuance a love story? Yes. Yes. So yeah, that, that a few years ago, right. Yeah. So that, um, you know, nuance doesn't, uh, play on social media, uh, you know, strong, like emotional, uh, reaction and like heightened, um, exaggeration and, and things like that. Those are the things that, that, that go viral and it, it doesn't, you know, I, I've noticed this, um, and it, 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 it works in any sphere. If you see these, all these weird things that bubble up on Twitter about like fans of like, um, so, uh, like fantasy shows on the CW or something, it's like the things that go viral are when people are like, this is the worst episode ever. And, and or like, this right. is, he is the best actor in the history. So like, just that, you know, that, that is what people retweet is when it's like highly charged. Yeah, that like, that's the currency. Yeah. So, although there is nuanced Twitter, have you noticed this? I feel like this is like a new subcategory. Like <laughs> all these people follow me, you know, they have handles like nuance needed and like you know, Mister Nuance. That's interesting. I mean, <laughs> nuanced, it... nuanced AF. You know. <laughs> um. Well, I mean, God bless them. But I think I think I just think the medium is not there. Like twi like the way it works is is anti nuance. Right. I mean, it's it's a limited set of characters. And, um, you know, there's some people who do these like Twitter essays and stuff. Some of them work, some of them don't, but it really is for the, the, the it wasn't built as, for this, but the things that thrive within that ecosystem are, uh, like either person X is the best person X is the worst. Look at what a moron this right. person on the other side is garbage um, garbage versus non-garbage. Yes. Right. So, yeah, so there's that, but then I, I, you know, I'm thinking also about, uh, that, you know, the line from Shakespeare, the, 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 uh, fool does think he's wise, but the wise man knows he's a fool. And just like um, the, you know, so many people have moral certainty or sure that they're right. And it goes from President Trump on down, who is, you know, the smartest, the best brain, the best genes. Like he, I, I alone can fix it. He said at his um, 
acceptance speech in, in 2016, and, and like he portrayed himself as, um, you know, he's the best at everything. Uh, when obviously, when not obviously, but when when in reality, he's he's just a moron. Um, and so but he's great at Twitter. Yeah, and and there's a connection there. Like like that is one of his skills is Twitter, and um, it helped launch his political career. Um, and yeah, so the, so but so yeah, there's 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 no shortage of like people who think they know exactly what um what the answer is to anything, and then like uh going <laughs> getting older in life I, I i'm more likely than i was 10 years ago to just throw up my hands and say i, I don't know the answer to this thing but but yeah well, who's going to retweet something if i said i don't know this why would anyone retweet that because that's like almost nothing yeah so that, that doesn't get me any clout that i don't know about something i mean all the but the best writing the best literature is about being conflicted Right. I mean, by definition, I always say I, I think I said this in my last book I, and I say this to my students, like if you're not conflicted, you're either lying to yourself or you're not very smart. <laughs> well, maybe that's one of the reasons that YA literature has grown in popularity over the past couple of decades, because, you know, there's not a lot of moral uncertainty in Harry Potter. Like there's Voldemort and he is the worst person in the world, such that you can't even say his name. And then there's Harry and his friends, and they're the best, and they're like great, the greatest friends ever, and blah blah blah. So that sort of, you know, very simplistic stuff about yeah, actually you're right, actually heroes that's... and villains and quests yes. and stuff like that. You know, like it's, people it's eat that shit up. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I, that sort of, uh, I mean, I, I don't read, I haven't read YA since like Judy Bloom <laughs> back in the day, but um, which is probably more morally complex than the stuff that, that is. Well, you know, I actually have today. my theories about Judy Bloom. I, I have this is a different conversation, but I'm, <laughs> I'm like I'm like a little anti Judy Bloom. Mm -hmm. I think she's a precursor to women's magazines. She said it like your life is a problem. Your life is a problem. Purity mm -hmm. has there has hereby rendered your entire life a problem. And then you grow out of that, and then you start reading like Seventeen magazine. Uh -huh. And then glamour and all these things to like sell you the solutions. That's Judy Bloom is a conspirator <laughs> with women's magazines. Okay, I'll have to think about that. I, I haven't reread any Judy Bloom since I was a child. Did she write Ramona Quimby? Is that Judy Bloom or is that no, else? No, that's Beverly Cleary, who's fantastic. That's a totally different thing. Okay, maybe I'm conflating the two. Dear Mr. Henshaw, that would be Beverly Cleary. This is also. such a great piece. Oh my God, <laughs> this is a great piece. Um, oh. I can't write it now. Oh yeah, you, you, you in know. my old in my old iteration, I would have been like. I'm going to write a think piece about, about my Judy Bloom. Yeah. I mean, that, that's like a slight right. pitch if I've, if I've ever heard it, but um, yeah, unfortunately uh, you've officially retired from the ring and uh, someone else will have to pick up the baton there um, to mix my sports metaphors. But, um, but yeah, just the, yeah, just the idea that, I mean, I remember I had a professor in college um, and it was a professor of Russian literature. And at one point he said something like the, you know, the great novels um, don't, uh, like give an answer they ask a question and i think he was talking about anna karenina and um so that's you know that's a different world from like the social media world um you know in, in like a dozen ways but uh you know the just like you you, you know if you when you finish anna karenina you're not ready to tweet like like uh you know oh vronsky was you know that that fucker like uh, like screw him drag his drag his ass to hell like you know or yeah. something like that you're, you're kind of just like you're not sure so so that is that we that, well right, but we just had the controversy in YA about the the, the author who was defending uh, classic literature got completely uh, dragged yeah, to so hell that, and that not even fits, back. I mean that's part of it. It's not, I, so I mean that thing was that whole thing was funny, especially the guy who wrote about like you disgusting worms um, the, in that tweet that went viral. And that is, that whole episode is strange. The YA world is very strange, explored by 
the people, uh, the the two hosts, uh, Feminine Chaos, uh, formerly on yes. Blogging Heads, very deeply. But um, yeah, part of it is like the simple stories um, in which there's like a hero and a villain, and and somehow we got to the point thinking that like like a teenager needs to read a story in which the hero like triumphs and the villain is defeated, or else they'll like become a villain themselves or something. It's right. I don't know. It's stupid. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah it, no, it's very you're right. That's a, yeah, so the, the sensibility of YA has really um, like crept into everything else um and it's this very black and white thinking yeah that's that's true um so maybe maybe i should write ya (laughs) well i wonder if there's some counter counter narrative you know brewing within ya or something for more you know, focusing on moral complexity or something, but I don't know. Maybe that, that would like sell. The, the intellectual dark web YA division. Yeah, although I I wouldn't want to read you know um, Eric Weinstein's uh, young adult novel. I would pass on that one. But um, I don't know. It could be like a like a series, like a, the whole just. Um, I would like Camille Paglia to do some do a YA series. This sounds more like sort of a New Yorker humor piece idea than than a uh, than something that could actually succeed. In the marketplace, so I'm thinking the of the old um, New Yorker, the old New Yorker humor <laughs> piece. Yeah, I don't know now. Did you? Um, did you? Oh, if you don't read YA, you probably don't read this. Did you ever read the um, the Golden Compass books? There there been multiple adaptations. One on HBO since then. It's, yeah. I'm forgetting the author's name, but it, it's kind of a um, a well, I I'd have to reread it to think about moral complexity. But it was in some ways it was written as a sort of like atheist response to the Narnia books, um, oh. where instead of like at the end you realize that Aslan. Aslan is Jesus. Like at the end, you like God is presented as this sort of like mummified man inside a glass box, and they open the box, and he like dissolves into dust. Um, but there's more. There is some moral complexity in those books um, that go beyond the sort of like Harry Potter, good versus evil. Uh, yeah. Stuff. But how, how long ago were they written? Not that not that this conversation needs to get derailed. I think they were. I think but... late nineties. There's. I think it's only three of them. Okay. Maybe a fourth one came out within the past couple of years. And I only read the first three. I think late nineties to early two thousands is when they came out. Well, I mean, look. It's. I mean, Madeline Lingle. There's. A, there's a rich tradition of of young adult yeah. literature, and it used to be like real literature. Anyway, we don't need to get off on that. Yeah. Then we're 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 moving towards take uh having takes on things, which is you know we want to we no, want to yeah. avoid. I'm, um. I'm... So. Yeah, I, I guess I would um, think, like, what is the, um, you know, where like, where is where is the market going and what do people want? So I, I've been saying for a while on the show that, you know, uh, Joe Biden was going to win because people were sick of Trump and the craziness and they want just kind of like return to normalcy, boring. And Trump being the president uh, made everything, like, seem super high stakes all the time and everyone was super morally righteous about their own side uh some with good reason and some maybe with not um but yeah it, it, like everything was hypercharged everything seemed like a massive battle of good versus evil like like people in the resistance like you know that's the resistance yeah. is either fighting the nazis or fighting you know the star wars uh, galactic empire or something um so we're moving into biden and I've actually uh, been joking on Twitter that like things that have been popping up over the past just couple weeks kind of show like maybe we're reverting to more like a 2010 era discourse. The thing about Dr. Jill Biden's doctorate, this is like blogosphere bullshit. And like, well, I have that, a lot. I had a lot to say about that. Well, um, I, I didn't read that piece, but I'll just say the, the fact that people 
are still talking about this like a week later is incredible to me. When the Trump life under Trump was something crazy happening, a new crazy thing would happen every 36 hours. Right. And then you right. would forget the previous things. The fact that people are talking about Dr. Joe Biden's doctorate is like, we're back. We're back. Like, this is, you know, I'm like, like nostalgic. Back. Are you happy? Like, does it feel good? Well, almost, I'm just laughing at it, but I'm almost like, it just, it just seems like such utter nonsense that, that who cares? We're not, we're not fighting about coronavirus. We're not fighting about, you know, right. whether uh, there's a secret cabal of cannibalistic uh, Democrats who are consuming children, uh, or we're not fighting about uh, actual children, you know, migrant children from Central America being in cages. We're, we're fighting about something that really doesn't matter, <laughs> like to anyone aside from like. But it came so. But it's interesting though because the it that uh, controversy arose from somebody on the right. So it was a Wall Street Journal editorial by Joseph Epstein. I have a little skin in this game because I got um, massively pilloried on Twitter last spring because I made a joke about Dr. Jill Biden. And it was like, it was the worst Twitter dragging of my entire life. I've had a couple bad ones and this was by far the worst. Uh And I just made this off the cuff comment, like, you know, I know it was shocking. It was off the cuff. It was a tweet. I said, uh, it just, oh, I was seeing Dr. Ford was trending, um, something having to do with Christine Blasey Ford. Mm-hmm. And I had always had sort of complicated feelings about the fact that they just constantly called her Dr. Ford, Dr. Ford, Dr. Ford. I felt that it was like a strategy to enhance her credibility, mm-hmm. but I also felt like it was sort of overkill and overcompensation that ultimately kind of diminished her story. Like she should have just been taken seriously as a human being. And I don't think they had to like put this doctor finesse on it. Anyway, it wasn't that they couldn't have, obviously they should have addressed her that way, but I felt that there was like this gratuitous repeating of Dr. Ford, Dr. Ford. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I didn't articulate that in one tweet. Uh, surprise, surprise. Yeah, so I, just kind of said, I said, seeing Dr. Ford uh, trending reminds me of how much I hate it when PhDs insist on being called doctor. <laughs> And I thought it was fine because most of the PhD holders I know like roll their eyes at people who just throw that honorific around and it's considered kind of like Aravist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I tweeted that and uh, as these things, you know, it sat there f- for a few days, totally fine. And people even liked it and people with PhDs were like, ha ha ha, so true. And then somebody got a hold of it and it was like, disaster. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people with PhDs um, just came after me. Uh-huh. Uh, and it, then it kind of became this racial thing, like, because there's, um, this was something I hadn't thought about. Um, people of color who have PhDs, there's a, um, sometimes, a, you know, feels more urgent to use that, use the honorific um, for various reasons, which are understandable. Anyway, uh, that I, I went through that and I ended up writing this elaborate tweet thread that took me easily as much time as it would have taken me to write a column <laughs> um, explaining all of this. And of course, nobody read it. It got like <laughs> like 15 likes or something after, after my initial tweet. It's been retweeted thousands of thousands of times. Right. Um, so then when the Epstein piece popped up last weekend, I thought, oh no, well, I noticed that it, I, before I noticed his piece, I was noticing that my old tweet was circulating again. I said, what's happened? What? Oh my gosh, it's back. And it was about this piece. And I thought, oh no, this guy, what is he saying? Uh, and 
you know, it was a, it was um, a really it was one of those op eds that is like not the one out of five that's really good. <laughs> that's an example. I don't know how often Joseph Epstein uh, writes columns for the Wall Street Journal. He's 83 years old. Yeah, so. based on his age, I don't think he's super active. He's certainly not on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I mean, that piece was almost like a, uh, tr- you know, a trolley hate read sort of thing to begin with. I don't know. I, Although it had, he was making valid points, actually. He, I, I, he wasn't wrong. Now I'm going to get in trouble again. It was a really weird opinion. piece. Yeah. Or do we grandfather, was, you wrote about this, so it's grandfathered into, the, you know, it's an okay. old opinion. It's I, not it's, a new opinion. Uh, it's um, no, he was he was actually trying to make a point about um, how a lot of Ph.D. programs are they're giving out too many Ph.D.s like they're they're the, the market is glutted. Right. And uh, this does affect sort of higher education more broadly. And there are a lot of sort of charlatans out there um, calling themselves doctor like he was making what could have been a valid and interesting point. It's just that he couched it in this inflammatory language um, that completely overwhelmed any any point he was trying to make. But, you know, there's an example. I don't think there would have been any way to write that column uh, and pull it off. Uh, <laughs> so I ended up writing a piece. So I, I'm blogging. I have, I'm blogging for Medium now. Uh, and so one of my blog posts was about this experience of getting dragged by the, by the PhDs um, and, and uh, how I sort of, I was I was cursing Joseph Epstein for for dragging me back into the you know dragging my tweet uh, back to the surface, but at the same time I, I felt I felt sorry for him. Um, but you know that's the that's the kind of piece I'd say that like in two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, I would have written a column about Dr. Jill Biden. That kind of phenomenon is something I would have taken on, and I think it would have been okay. I had um, editors that would have saved me from myself. Um, I, I, I would have, um, I, I would have stated it as carefully as possible. And I have to say, it, before Twitter, I think a column like that would have, it would have been fine. I wrote columns about things I can't believe that I got away with them. I mean, I, I wrote a column in, in like 2008 uh, comparing. Uh, Barack Obama to an Eames chair and Hillary Clinton to an old sofa. And it was, but it was complimentary of Clinton. It was, it was pro Clinton and it was fine. I got, well, but, no, I, mean, I got no blowback. But here's the thing. I mean, there's a, the mechanism for blowback didn't exist in the same way it does now. So in 2008, there probably would have, there probably were comments on yeah, the, but the comments Times. weren't that mean. I think, because you know what too, like, I think, but there's no, the, the, like there's, there weren't like, on Twitter, you can do like a drive-by thing where you can slam someone with in like 15 seconds, and they, you don't even need to have like read beyond the headline. And then you do your treat, your tweet, like quote tweet slam on it, and then you move on. And right, and like that's that is what Twitter is for. Like, there's obviously anyone who has written or posted a video, uh, for example. Um, has noticed that people often just comment without they just read the title anyway, so that happens. But like. You know, uh, it, it, like 30 years ago in the pre-internet era, it was letter to the editor or talking among friends. Those are the only two ways you could give feedback yeah. on a, a bad column in whatever. And um, so it's just, you know, the masses are pouring in. And um, 
And yeah, yeah so that everyone has can have a voice. And actually, I want to run this by you. I've mentioned this a couple other episodes, and I haven't. I, I, I like I said, I, I I cannot write three thousand words in forty five minutes, so I haven't put this paper. But in some ways, you know, there's been all this debate about free speech and uh, you know, no platforming and all this stuff um, over the past couple of years. And I've been thinking, uh, you know, maybe the the problem isn't um, uh, limits on speech. It's really there's too much speech. Um, too many people are talking constantly. And yes. they're all offering their takes, and you don't need to be a credentialed person at <laughs> the LA Times offer a take. Any moron can do it on social media. And and so there's, like, this cacophony. And, yeah, it used to be hard to – if you if you wanted to write a letter to the editor, you had, like, 50 years ago, you had to have, like, a typewriter, or you're writing it by hand. And then you needed to go to the post office and have a stamp, whereas now it's just an email. So it's, it's just easier to – like, there's so much more speech now than there used to be. And when there's some sort of, like, pylon or gang up – like that is speech. Like people, it's more people chiming in in a way that that was impossible twenty years ago. But that's like the utopia vision of the internet was like, oh, everyone will like speak their piece and we'll all like learn from each other. And but that that didn't work out. It's it's everyone ganging up and, right. and being in tribes. And yeah. So does this, uh, do you buy this that there's 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 just too many people talking and more people like need to shut up? I mean, you're you kind of are shutting Com- up in a way right completely, now. Completely, <laughs> completely. I mean, I talk about this in, in my book, in The Problem with Everything. I think a lot of the problem is that we are just hearing about everything, not just opinion pieces and people's responding to them or somebody's responding to somebody's video on social media. Like we're getting every every single thing that happens to anybody is something that we could know about. People think that we've never lived in a more dangerous time uh, for certain groups. People, you know, people, you would think that police violence has never been worse. Well, that's patently untrue. But the fact is that every single terrible incident that happens regarding a police shooting, just for to cite one example, there's a video of it uh, and we hear about it. Right. So yeah, obviously there's not that's always it, a video of that's it, but there somebody's... often is. Yeah, because and so the, we just think that we're living in this terrible, terrible time. Uh, and so I just and, and that I think that gets into like, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to think because the, the logical side of my brain can look at the data and see, oh, you know, there are, you know, there were this many unarmed black men killed uh, last year. And it's like a number so low that it doesn't line up to any of the sort of ambient uh, kind of information that we that we're receiving. Um, so you can look at that and say, oh, well, why that that number uh, is one thing, and yet the perception is something else, and the perception is really the main story. It's you know I I call it ambient perception, mm-hmm. and it just that is like the sum total of all of this information that we're receiving all the time. Everybody's little light is shining, and it's. And it's blinding. And it used to be that if something happened to you just in your lived experience, quote unquote, you would like get together with your friends and talk about it. Like if some if you're a young woman and some guy like yells at you on the street or is rude to you or is sexist to you or mansplains or whatever, uh, you would go and complain about it with your friends uh over drinks or whatever and then move on but the fact that you now have the opportunity to you know write about it on tumblr if it was 10 years ago or tweet about it now it then just becomes like a public act and it becomes uh part of a larger zeitgeist when it really should just be part of your 
personal <laughs> quotidian life. Right. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, I don't want to go too far with this because like the police example is good because, you know, 30 years ago, more or less the police had total impunity in any like specific instance and their version of events would almost certainly carry the day either in the public narrative or in court. And because, you know, the, it would be, he said, he said, or something, and who, who are you going right. to believe the cops are this no good, no good criminal type. And so if, you know, people had it, if the smartphone didn't exist, then like, you know, the, the video of George Floyd, George Floyd being killed by the cop would have existed. And then the cops would have just said like, this guy had a heart attack or something, or he was on drugs and he collapsed and we did everything we could. And so that, so it, it's good that, you know, the, the system, you know, that the cops just can't get away with, with that kind That's of stuff right. that they used to be able to do. Uh, but also it is bad. Yeah. Cause you're right. Because there is less, um, police violence than there was 30 years ago, but now we can see it. And there's less, I mean, I've, I've mentioned this on the show before when I had, uh, Robbie Suave, um, on about his book, but, um, you know, there was this incident that happened at Yale where a student was yelling at Nicholas Christakis, who was a, who was a professor there. And, uh, this incident, if it had happened when I was a student there, um, would not have made it into the Yale Daily News because it, someone yelling at someone else is not a news story, even even in college newspaper. So it would have been yeah. easily forgotten, and maybe you know, like there would have been some hurt feelings, <laughs> like with the central. It's just like a, a little a little thing that happens in a crowd. It's a little eruption. Of, yeah, yeah. And, people people yelling at each other is not news, uh, but because there was video and because it was very dramatic and very heightened. And this woman was young woman was very emotional and she was black and he's white and she's young and he's old. And they're in this beautiful I league quad and stuff. It went viral. And, um, and that is probably a bad thing, like overall for the world that, that something like that could happen. And instead of it just being frowned the next day. And it makes it impossible to, to process the experience in any kind of like intellectually or cognitively, authentic or ordered way like that you have the experience and it's immediately goes to the crowd for their for 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 their metabolization you know like mm. it's it's not you don't even you're not even giving yourself the gift of your own experience you're just like immediately um putting it you know just throwing it out there and i just think like if you can't if you if you can't kind of think sit with what just happened to you or just sit with your thoughts, you're not able to like be a thinking person in the world. So we just have that kind of scenario writ large, the same way that you can't write, you know, do a piece of writing anymore without it immediately being reacted to um, in a, by everybody publicly. It used to be that you would sit with the piece and think about it. And then, like you said, if you were still, if you were still angry about it, you'd, you'd write a letter to the editor and uh, you know, Right. Or I mean, but the flip side of that is like, if, you know, if there's no immediate reaction to a piece that it sinks back under the waves because there's 10,000 more pieces or takes or videos or tweets or something competing with it at every moment for the eyeballs or or whatever. So that, that, so that gives the incentive for the more a piece that's going to provoke an emotional reaction, um, like calling Joe Biden kiddo or something. So that, that like that little part. part you should have called been, her whippersnapper. That's what I, that, I think. That, that little that's, part that's would have, that line probably would have been cut by an editor 20 years ago. And maybe they let I don't know if it was conscious or not. I don't but, think there was an editor. I would be curious. Like a lot of these, I don't think a lot of these columnists, I don't know about the Epstein piece. I have no idea, but I, I get yeah, the I sense know, that a lot of these columnists inside. are not, 
they, they they have to work so quickly. I don't think they get edited very heavily. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Inside Wall Street Journal opinion, I'm not quite sure what goes on in there, and it's probably they're probably not thinking about the um you know the greater right. public good or something when they're when they're deciding what to put there. Um, but yeah, I'd also that, like to know when did the word take take hold? The idea of the take. I, I it seems like a blog era word to me, but I guess I'm not exactly sure. We need we should get the OED people in here because i've i've seen people on twitter like i've seen somebody will tweet something and it's just an observation it's like oh um i'm looking out at the snow right now like oh the snow has a you know has a certain quality to it and it you know reminds me of something and then the reaction will be like bad take (laughs) right well yeah i've thought about that too and what i mean part of it is part of the like insanity of social media is sort of like everything sort of looks the same and is all mixed up. So you have someone saying, oh, the snow outside is pretty. And then you have Donald Trump saying, I am pardoning, you know, uh, General Flynn. (laughs) And these these are right next to each other and they look the same, same font and everything. And so it's like, what is, it reminds me of that um, within the context of no context uh, essay by, or book by Georgia (laughs) Trobut, which I don't even really remember what it's about, but but I did read it at one point in my (laughs) life. I don't think he knew what it was about when he was writing it, but that's yeah, It's it's like context collapse and everything is mixed up and kind of the same and a a photo of, you know, a photo of a puppy and then someone announcing their, their father died. Like it's it's all, it's all mixed up and how can this not like make us go insane? Yeah. And that's what sort of postmodernism was like that used to be when people would talk about what is postmodernism? And now yeah, it's, 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 it's hypercharged. I mean, when like, what's that guy's name? Uh, Mark Lehner. Um, I think it's a new novel coming out, but, but, um, you know, oh, he, wow. he, he was, he like that stuff. And like, they were reacting to like, just like cable TV, the fact that there were, there were like 50 channels or something and, and flipping through that and like seeing all that stuff. And now, I mean, it's, it's hypercharged. It's, it's 10,000 times right. what it was back then when, when people first like kind of <laughs> analyzing this stuff. I know it's quaint. People <laughs> used to get freaked out about MTV. Right. Like in my time, when I was a teenager, that was like, I was like, oh my gosh, no, music is dead. Nobody can hear music anymore. You never listen to the song. You're just watching the video. We're whereas ruined. That, whereas now, I mean, this is even like, I'm nostalgic for first making this complaint that MTV doesn't play music videos anymore. Like, there's probably kids growing up today who are like, MTV, like, that, they play videos? Like, what? That doesn't even make any sense <laughs> to me. Uh, you know, they stopped playing videos 20 years ago. So, um, so yeah, so things, things are moving very fast. But, but do you, okay. Uh, since you're putting aside this one form of, of, of being like a opinion columnist and embracing a different form, I guess an older form blog, like, are you uh, optimistic? Uh, are there signs for <laughs> signs for hope or, or, or like there's a system that Silicon Valley and the media has created, like going to just keep on encouraging this sort of insanity? Uh, I think yes. And so I think that there isn't much hope in terms of the, the economic uh, model, but I, I do think that people are really, really sick of the way things are now. And they have been sick of it for a long time. I mean, I started noticing this five or six years ago. This isn't really that new. I mean, people were, were really fed up with um, kind of, you know, weaponized identity politics online. And I say weaponized identity politics because I don't think all identity politics is bad. Like, I'm not somebody who throws around that term. Um, but there was, there was real resistance in some corners to this kind of stuff, even five or six years ago. And now I think that the level of, um, being fed up with the hyperbole and this kind of flattened discourse, more people hate that than don't hate it. I mean, that, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, everyone's, you know, we're talking about 
the sort of um, capture of big institutions with, you know, what is called wokeness. Again, I don't throw that term around either, but you know, the, the, the fact is that it's a very small group of people that truly embrace this kind of um, this kind of discourse and this kind of like misapplied intersectionality. Uh, and, and most people do want to have nuanced TM nuanced is I, I feel embarrassed using all these words like nuanced. <laughs> I feel like nuanced. Uh, <laughs> They really do want to have long, complicated conversations. There's a reason that people will sit there and, and listen to Joe Rogan for three hours. Uh, there's a reason that all these podcasts are so popular and they keep popping up. I mean, definitely it's oversaturated, but people are insatiable. People are, there is an insatiable appetite for this. I mean, I hear from people all the time just doing my podcast. They say, thank you for having these conversations. And these are the kinds of conversations I used to have with my friends that we don't anymore for some reason. Uh, and so that's, that's replaced it. So I guess my hope is that um, there will be more and more of that. The problem is it just gets siloed. The, you know, that's, that, that's the thing. It's like a Faustian bargain because the answer to people not liking the discourse is to like, you know, create their own little discourses, but then it gets more and more thinly sliced so yeah, we may just have to accept that we're never going to go back to having like, you know, three networks and Walter Cronkite telling us what the news is. It is going to turn, you know, it is like, <laughs> here's what we want you to believe today. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, you know, there's a, there's an economic incentive with Substack and Patreon to sort of attract a like core group of true believer types and you only need like a thousand or so to pay five dollars a month, and then, you know, that's a, an okay middle class living. So that's like committed fans who agree yeah. with you. So in some ways, you're, you're like creating your own echo chamber. Yeah. So I think I mean podcasts. Yeah, po I, I, I'm I'm interested in like sort of economic and technological determinism and just the way that like a tweet works, the way that a podcast works. Like you can't just you know a podcast can't just be 240 characters because then it's like four seconds long and no one wants to download that. So so like it, the format encourages these long conversations of the Joe Rogan type or the blogging his type. And then whereas a tweet, you know, it's, it's short, acerbic, um, you know, sharp, right. emotional, the, the technology encourages that. So I don't know. Um, but it is, um, but you know, like I said, the, even if you take politics and identity politics and wokeness and intersectionality totally out of it and just look at the people who are tweeting about their favorite cartoons, like they're still, the form encourages this crazy way of being like, you know, I would die for She-Ra, you know, the She-Ra cartoon or something or, or some character on the She-Ra cartoon or a like imagined bisexual re relationship between two characters on the She-Ra cartoon. Like, like <laughs> the, the format just seems to bring forth this type of, you know, rhetoric or something. And, and, and people either are really invested in it or they pretend to be really invested in it because it gets retweets. And I don't yeah. know. So, that, so I, that's where I kind of like throw up my hands and I don't know, maybe, maybe Jack Dorsey will shut down Twitter and release us all from the, the captivity. Of, I don't know, of that. maybe, you know how, remember the, the simplicity movement, like that was a big thing. And mm -hmm. then in the nineties, um, and it was all like a kind of, you know, fetishizing leaving the big city and, you know, having some kind of permaculture set up or 
uh, just kind of like, or, you know, real simple magazine emerged from this. Like right. here's your, you know, buy this $800 wastebasket. <laughs> I actually wrote, I actually wrote a novel um, sort of spoofing the simplicity movement in, in part. Uh, so that was a, that would, that was a thing. So sometimes I wonder if we're due for like an intellectual simplicity movement. <laughs> um, that's interesting to think about, but you're not allowed like, to write a tape. Print, newspaper, like it'll be cool. It'll be cool. It's like analyst, like vinyl. Like you're like the, the hipster, the hipster thing will be to like read the newspaper in print and not be on social media. Yes. And- okay. I can see that. And I know that there, there is some sort of revival of actual physical zines that, that people are producing and mailing out. Well, and Weasel Tears journal liberties. That's, a, that's, that's pretty a th- much not online. Yeah. That's like a throwback to a, a, like two generations ago of media. Um, so yeah, that's possible. I don't know. Um, well, yeah, we'll have to see. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, you're not, I guess, you're not getting, you're not going to uh, invest in that, in that concept. Well, I, don't know. I mean, I, I like there is, you know, there is a pleasure in like having a physical newspaper and looking at it. But then again, there's a reason, like there's a lot of economic and technological reasons that that uh, is not, is a dying way of doing things. So, I think I people are, out. I think people will be, especially, after the pandemic, but just more generally, I think people are going to be wanting to get together and have in-person conversations. Yeah. I mean, we already were seeing that the, pe- the stage events, people will come out and sit in auditoriums and watch people talk to each other on a stage. Yes. And I think that that, um, that suggests that, that there's real interest in, in that. And, and I think you could even take that to another level, like just people getting together sort of like, maybe salons or some kind of, if there was like an organized forum for, for discussion, I think that would be something. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. And um, yeah, you know, uh, paying $35 to go see pod save America live on stage or something like that was, they were having a lot of success with that before the pandemic and, and the, the, the lack of social actual social contact we've been having um, because the pandemic definitely, you know, there's going to be a lot of people wanting to be in crowds and crowded rooms once, hopefully this, this is all, all past us. Um, and that, and that, that can be a sort of business model uh, of, of its own. I mean, you can think back to like the sort of, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln Douglas debates or like, you know, people who would like give a address at Cooper union or something that was like a huge, a huge event, um, before any, you know, there are any other ways to, to, uh, hear people's voices and stuff like that. So who knows? I guess it's possible. Um, okay. We've got, we've gone a, a little over an hour. Should we, um, anything else you want to, you want to add or should we, uh, should I should probably quit while I'm ahead. Yeah. I guess I would say, um, yeah, I'm just, I would, I'm excited about the podcast. So really to answer your first question, when I, I am of course going to keep writing and I mean, this is a little tongue in cheek. I can't keep myself from having an opinion. I am just going to try. I am going to stay away from the zeitgeisty, the big high concept think piece. Yeah. And I might encourage others to do the same. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 as as the the crisis of the Trump presidency comes to its end, and as the crisis of the um, pandemic hopefully comes to its end, I hope to sort of disconnect from from feeling like I need to know what's happening every second um, as well. And maybe, yeah, I just feel like the, the, like Trump amped up the craziness of everything in America by you know like ten times, and 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 once boring Sleepy Joe is is in there, hopefully. Like the pace will, will just kind of naturally slow because it's not like something crazy is going to happen. The chance of something crazy happening all the, at every moment uh, is going to go down a lot. 
Um, so that, I guess that's kind of my hope. Um, okay, so uh, we'll include the link to your podcast. So uh, can you say the name of it again? It's called The Unspeakable. And it's uh, every week. It's been on a little hiatus um, the last uh, month or so, but it's coming back um, the beginning of January. And uh, yeah, it drops on Mondays and um, just free ranging, interesting conversations with smart people. So okay, so check that out. Check and out. Um, and uh, of course, this is this itself is a podcast, and and people can subscribe to it wherever uh, podcasts, uh, whatever you get your podcasts and rate and review it and all that other stuff. Uh, so Megan, thank you for coming on, especially at such short notice and talking yeah, about this. Yeah, no, this is, this was a sn- great thing to do on the snow day. So. <laughs> right. And we, I think we talked more about you deciding you wanted to talk less than we both anticipated. So that's, I'm happy about that. Um, <laughs> Off to a great start. <laughs> okay. So thank thank you, Megan. Thanks to our viewers and listeners. <laughs> okay. And thanks, we'll see Art. you next time. Bye.